Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends from Philadelphia get together and talk about movies. We are rounding out our theme of spooky horror in some ways, grotesque. It's sort of a broad, we're, we're taking uh, the theme broadly this year and uh, addressing all things horror, spooky, or just, yeah, gross to look at. And to end that theme, uh, we are talking about the night, well, before I introduce the movie that we're going to talk about today, I would first love to do a quick check-in. How is everyone doing today? We've got Sam, Dave, and Connor with us. Um, yeah, how is, how is everyone doing in this spooky month of October? I'm terrified. It's been very spooky, very creepy. Constantly terrified as Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a great time watching uh, some stuff, though. I watched uh, Dune, which uh, just recently released this past week. As of this recording uh, on HBO Max and in theaters, kicking myself for not seeing it in theaters the first time. Uh, I was pretty floored. I think it does have uh, it does sync with some of the, mo- uh, the, the the dominant criticism that it's it's sort of a very visually rich and grandiose movie uh as is villanov's uh villanov's uh you know forte but there is a bit of like shallowness to uh some of the characters but then they ultimately are are archetypes in a way that wouldn't be out of place in something like star wars or something so i think as a sci-fi modern sci-fi adaptation of this work it's pretty uh pretty breathtaking visually at the very least and i yeah i really enjoyed it looking forward to uh the second one now that it's been officially greenlit I am so happy that they greenlit the second one because this is, I haven't seen Dune yet. I'm hoping to see in theaters uh, in a few days. Pretty big fan of the book. I read, I was borrowing a friend's copy and right as I finished reading it and to text her that I was done reading it, like as I opened my phone, I got a push notification that Dune was delayed a year, the movie. And I was like, no, I was so close to finishing it right when it came out. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. I love uh, Denis Villeneuve. Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. So I'm happy to hear, Dave, that you liked it. And I'm super excited to see it soon. Yeah, see it in theaters, though. It's it's a loud movie, even on the TV. So seeing it in theaters with the visual spectacle elements and everything, I'm sure it's a pretty wild ride in theaters. That's the thing. I'm so tempted to just get on HBO Max and just fucking watch it. But I really would like to watch it in the theaters on IMAX. I, the first time I watched Blade Runner 2049 was a shitty stream, like like just some really shitty stream. And I was so mad that I spent the time watching a movie I knew I was loving, but would have even loved more in the theater. So finally, I like eventually saw it in, a, in proper quality. But um, Speaking of going to the theaters to see a movie, I... The last movie I saw in theater, I thought had been Little Women um, on New Year's Eve, twenty New Year's Day, 2020. Uh, I was wrong. It was actually Just Mercy. I saw it in February of 2020. Um, but I just went back to the theater for the very first time. And believe it or not, what brought me back to the theater was, I can't, be, I can't even believe it, Venom 2. Um, 
<laughs> and I really liked it. <laughs> um, it was definitely a cool experience. I think that there was like six or seven other people in the theater with me. It's so strange how even though we had an entire theater, it was, it's pretty big. Um, we all still kind of grouped together. <laughs> I think it's just like what people want to do. No one wants to be like so far away from another human being. But um, if, so the first Venom I liked, I really enjoyed it. Um, this one is so much better. It's so good. Um, Woody Harrelson is carnage. He just like absolutely nails it. And honestly, like Venom and Eddie are perfect. Everything I wanted. So I recommend going to see it. And it's a lean what, like 90 something minutes? I think it's the shortest superhero movie to come out in decades. Yeah, it's very cool. Perfect. Yeah, I I feel like, Sam, your idea that people will still sort of congregate in specific areas. And th- I feel like there are good and bad seats in theaters. You know, it's like you want to keep apart, but at the same time, you're like, I want to fucking watch this movie and I want to be where I want to be. <laughs> One seat, one seat from the aisle in the uh, the center. That's the way See, to go. Everyone's, in my experience. everyone's, yeah, everyone's got their like ideal, ideal seat. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe Dune will be will mark my return. I did watch a movie that did just recently come out, but was also available. Actually, mm, it was I did a bad thing and I found a good stream <laughs> of it, but um, it was uh, Paul Schrader's Dune. <laughs> I've done a bad thing. Uh, I did. Speaking of Dune and Oscar Isaac, I watched uh, Paul Schrader's new movie, Card Counter. And uh, I, at first, like 20 minutes in, I was like, I'm going to hate this movie. <laughs> but then I ended up liking it a lot. Uh, I thought the performances were good. Uh, and it like blends multiple plot points that I didn't know were going to be blended. Did it sort of takes on a lot, um, but I, but I really like uh, Willem Dafoe and Oscar Isaac play good sort of uh, an- antagonists um, or like yeah opposite forces, and uh, Tiffany Haddish is really great in it. So yeah, I I, I definitely see a lot of the uh, first reform themed like solitary man writes in journal <laughs> drinks whiskey ponders life and it's like okay i i, I see it but but I, I definitely uh recommend watching it it's very intense though yeah i mean to check that one out at some point does anybody drink pepto that's my burning question <laughs> no no um, any 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 encasing oneself in barbed wire but there i mean there's a there's some extremely hard to watch yeah, I, I would say up front, it's a it's a pretty hard movie to watch and maybe look it up and look up some of the themes it addresses before diving headfirst into watching it. Um, hmm. But uh, but, you know, we're going to roll right into uh, to our uh, final movie in our spooky theme and uh that is Guillermo del Toro's 1993 classic, Kronos. Um, I had seen this movie a couple years ago and was like, wow, how have I not seen this movie until just recently? I really have loved Guillermo del Toro's other work, and it was really wonderful to be able to watch his very first feature film. And 
just to give you a little quick synopsis of this movie, Kronos, it, uh, it's about a the story of a 14th century alchemist who creates a golden wind-up device that holds the key to eternal life. But the device gets lost over time until an antique shop owner in Mexico City stumbles upon it. He accidentally pierces himself with the device and becomes consumed by its powers, causing him to thirst for blood, ultimately distance himself from his beloved granddaughter and his wife and become hounded by a wealthy family, uh, the De La Guardias, uh, who want it for their own nefarious purposes. Um, so it's really just a pretty simple plot, just this uh, powerful little uh, Kronos device that uh, promises eternal life, but also the consequences of, uh, you know, desiring something like immortality. Um, and so, yeah, the movie addresses really broad themes, but I think features some really uh, great, great performances. Frederico Lupi plays the main character, the antique shop owner, Jesus Grease. Ron Perlman, who always shows up in all of Guillermo del Toro's movies, uh, plays Angel de la Guardia, uh, the nephew of the rich businessman, uh, Dieter de la Guardia, who is trying to get after this uh, Kronos device um, before Jesus can get his, or yeah, basically he's tracking down Jesus to try to get a, to get a hold of it. So that is the plot uh, of Kronos. How about the group? What is everyone's relationship with this movie? Have people seen this before? Is this the first time that uh, the group has seen this movie? I have not seen it before. I remember when we first started, you know, thinking about Butter with that, this is one film that I know you've wanted to bring up. So I was excited to finally get to it three years later. Um, and yeah, uh, excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'd never seen it before either. Uh, I think I might have been confusing, as I so often do, this movie with another movie called Krull, which is pretty fun. But uh, are but, you referring it, to the uh, the magical, uh, like the K R O O K R O L L movie? K K R U L L, yeah. Oh, K R U, yeah. The, they ride horseback, and it's like fairy tales and like spooky forests and stuff. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I watched that like a year and a half ago, and that was. Interesting. So yeah, I was surprised it wasn't that, <laughs> but I had not seen it before. I haven't seen it either, Christine. This is this is really interesting. Three of us for the first time. Wow. This is fun. Yeah, I uh, had I've wanted to talk about Kronos on Butter with That for a long time, and we you know we do kind of spooky theme this time of year every year. And I was like, finally, I'm, I will, I will talk about it because I really do love this movie. And, uh, I think that it really, again, it was Guillermo del Toro's first feature film. He had done several shorts, uh, that were, that were getting some buzz. Uh, he was only 28 or 29 when he filmed this, uh, movie, which is, is wild, uh, that he was, getting big budgets for his very first movie. And apparently in 1993, this was uh, the highest or second highest movie budget in uh, in a Mexican production at the time. And it, it ended up running over, uh, over budget. I think it was supposed to have like a one to $1.5 million budget and it went up to two or a little over 2 million. But it was a, it was a big success. Uh, it was ultimately Mexico's submission for Best Foreign Film to the Academy Awards, but it was rejected 
uh, which I can't believe why, but uh, it did win a con jury prize and nine Mexican Academy Awards. So uh, it definitely was well received when it came out. And uh, I I wanted to bring it to the group because I really think that uh, it is a wonderful foreshadowing of Guillermo del Toro's whole career, Uh, his type of storytelling, the themes he likes to address of um, sort of mythological and magical elements. Um, I I think it showcases his uh, real knack for practical effects, uh, his balance of like playful childlike visual sensibility with also extremely menacing undertones that you you see in movies like uh, Pan's Labyrinth. I I feel like there are a lot of crossovers between those movies. And so, uh, yeah, I I just... uh, think that it it really is a bang and first feature for for a movie director and uh would love to know what the crew thinks about it uh or what people's general relationships with, with Guillermo del Toro have been people enjoyed his movies or kind of tended not to like what del Toro serves up I believe we talked about um del Toro twice on the podcast uh, my pick of Hellboy years ago and then Sam's recent pick of Pacific Rim Oh my God, you're totally right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we've done. That's right. Yes. He's really coming up a lot. He has been coming up a lot. So I think so. He's up there with a director that we spent some time talking and thinking about. Uh, Del Toro is a director that I love. I don't love all his movies, but when they hit, um, I really connect with it. Like Christine, you brought up Pants Labyrinth. I think this movie walked, so Pants Labyrinth could run. That's kind of how I was thinking about Kronos. I would say I half enjoyed Kronos. It's kind of like my gut instinct. I really was intrigued by the grandfather. And I thought this was a really interesting setup for a horror movie. Um, But I, it was tough to engage with the uncle plot. And as much as I love Ron Perlman, I, I had a hard time putting him in this movie, but his presence brings a lot of like comedy and humor. And so I can see where Del Toro is trying to work like tonally, like sort of this really scary, you know, man encounters artifact that changes him forever and how that's scary with these sort of like more lighthearted elements and bigger mythos building. And um, so I think I liked parts of it, but I wouldn't say I fully loved Kronos. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, the sort of humorous and comedic elements of it. Uh, Cause I, yeah, I, I would like to know what the crew thinks about particular characters or scenes that, that, veer, I guess, tonally into more sort of slapstick or, or comedic humor, but, or, or just general thoughts about the movie. I think, uh, one slight, well, first of all, I, I, I like the movie enough. I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting. I think that I really like the story as far as the ideas and the way that it's shaped and everything more when I read about it than I did the movie. I think only because of, Guillermo's kind of like playful tone that we've alluded to. Uh, I do I do appreciate that that's part of this, that this is a lighthearted kind of horror movie. But I think the big thing, and I, I'm going to try not to do this as we continue discussing this, uh, but the big thing for me was that my mind kept immediately going to Hellraiser because uh, 1987's Clyde Barker film Hellraiser does share a lot of very narrative touchstones with this film and even some aesthetic like touchstones as far as horror is concerned. Uh, But that's a much more dour and like cynical and darkly 
humorless movie. So I think I was just kind of having a problem different prying the two of them apart given their shared ideas. Um, but I do think he puts a lighthearted spin on it in a way that's interesting, although maybe not what I was not not what I was ex- not not expecting because like the whole thing with Guillermo is he does have this like element of wonder and whimsy to all of his work, however dark, especially because it's not really him introducing you to a world of whimsy so much as magic coming into our world in almost all of his work, which is really cool and really a strength of a lot of his other work. But with this one, I think it was maybe a shade too playful for my taste and could have delved into the horror elements a little bit more. But I, I don't think it's bad. I didn't dislike it. It's just uh, th- that I, I think I think it's just Hellraiser beating me over the head subconsciously the whole time, maybe. For those of us who have not seen Hellraiser like myself, what is it? What's its deal? Uh, Hellraiser is a uh, it's a it's a box. Um, this this ancient artifact that, when opened, introduces its user to a, a world of pain and pleasure indivisible. Uh, almost as this eternal promise of constant suffering and eroticism, uh, which ultimately affects the lives of everyone it touches. Yeah. And also, yeah, a creature that needs to feed on blood to regenerate. Yeah, that being a big, a huge part of that movie too. And if you've seen like the pinhead guy, like white face with all like the nail, like the pins in it. It's a, it's a pretty great movie. I'd recommend it. But just the first one after that, the second one's okay. And then the rest are trash. Um, I didn't hate it. <laughs> um, That's a big step for you, Sam. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> um, there were definitely moments where I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. And I'm super into it and engaged. And then immediately followed by moments where I was like, I have literally never been this bored in my life. Um, I kind of wish as much as we love Ron Perlman, I kind of wish we just like cut out that entire subplot because <sighs> I know I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I no, not because of Ron Perlman, because I like the subplot, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just like, didn't like it. I felt like it really weighed the movie down and I would have liked it to be just, um, you know, this guy finding an instrument to give him mortality and dealing with the consequences there. I would have liked that, but it's not my movie. So, Hey, don't listen to me Del Toro because clearly I don't matter. So you would have preferred the, you would have preferred extracting the whole plot about Dieter de la Guardia, the business, rich businessman, trying to find the Kronos device or whatever, whatever we're calling it. Uh, you, you would have liked to take away that entire plot point. Yeah, I'm sorry to say. I feel like, or yeah, what, what do other people think? Should the plot have been even more streamlined? I feel like the plot was pretty streamlined and, and simple for the most part. Um, what would have taking away those characters gained or, or, or lost? I guess I see Sam, why that you, that would, you would gravitate toward that because it would focus more than on, uh, the the familial dynamic, he and the granddaughter. Um, I did appreciate the caper element that is also involved though, by contrast, I think it broke that up a little bit, especially because the granddaughter Aurora, Aurora, um, really doesn't have. I think she has like two lines in this movie, maybe. So like, yeah, it might've afforded more room for that, but I did appreciate that uh, it's broken up in a way that is both comedic via Ron Perlman 
and him handled like a comedic role very well in this movie. Um, I mean, I love Ron Perlman and everything I've seen him in, except, well, yeah, everything, including uh, Alien Resurrection, which is bad. Um, but, but I also really like the Uncle Dieter story where it, it becomes this menacing thing where I think it's interesting because uh, Jesus has stumbled into this thing and it's almost an accident that it, it, it invades his body the way that it does, albeit something that could be advantageous, like, you know, eternal life. But by contrast that someone sinister is trying to track this down, I think is an interesting element to throw in there too, with like full established knowledge of what it is, not only in a way that he can explain it to Jesus, but in a way that creates a whole new, like antagonistic character motivation for his whole subplot. So I, I like that it's in there. I, I agree with you, Dave, about man finds artifact, stumbles into this larger kind of machinations. But I think I was just so confused about he's sick and dying. He's in this like steel factory in Mexico city. Like, I feel like the, the, like the set piece and like who this, you know, who this family is, I thought brought up a lot of questions for me that kind of were distracting. Um, and then also, I mean, we spoil every film that we talk about, but I, right. it feels like he kind of like lets him get away with it. Or like, is it just like, what's his operation is like, is it only Ron Perlman, but we see other people getting like, you know, hunting down these artifacts too. Like, I feel like this opened up a lot of questions that the film wasn't interested in answering. And I thought that was, I don't know. There was something about them, like they're American, but they have like what, I just was confused about who they are, what their deal is. I know he wants it for immortality, but he just kind of lets Jesus get away, I guess, to track him. And then Perlman hates him, which is like a funny element. But does that detract from like the seriousness of this old man's quest to get this? So I, I was I couldn't quite put my finger on why this subplot didn't quite work. But I think structurally it's a good fit. Maybe it's just an issue of writing. Yeah, I guess you're asking, you guys are asking a lot of this movie, <laughs> uh, which is important, <laughs> is definitely important. Um the way I sort of see the unanswered questions or I guess the ambiguity that the movie presents, because there's certainly a lot of ambiguity. You don't get a lot of backstory of the De La Guardias. You, you know that they're wealthy. You know that they have some sort of business or industry. Um, and, you know, I, like it, it raises could raise questions of like like American business dealings in Mexico, like you could go all the way back into some like explorations of that. I, I give you that, Connor. There's some, there's definitely some ambiguity. I see sort of the simple characters and simple plot line as as more of connecting to the desire, the story to be like a like a uh, like a fable or like just mm. sort of a yeah, just a, a story that has sort of these magical elements and has quite. Uh, simple elements, but just that delve into other sort of uh, sort of archetypal stories of like uh, people wanting immortality and and the sacrifices that someone makes for the desire, you know, for for wealth or prosperity or immortality, you know, all of these things. And I think the uh, I don't as far as the granddaughter Aurora not having very many lines, I sort of saw her as uh, just being sort of a witness of what was going on. She she has this wonderful relationship with her grandfather. And I think the movie captures those tender moments so well. You see uh, Jesus's antique shop and the granddaughter. There's there's some 
mention of the the parents, or at least the father had died. So Jesus's son had died, Aurora's father. We don't know what happened to the mother, but essentially she's being raised by her grandparents. And she clearly loves the, the magic of her grandfather's antique shop. And I think the movie just captures that sense of wonder and uh, and space of all these like toys that she's surrounded with. I mean, it's also kind of freaky as fuck, but like uh, she has this whole attic of playthings and they're uh, speckled with light. And, and it, I think it weaves so beautifully through sort of magical playfulness and just, yeah, scary elements. But anyhow, I, I sort of see that granddaughter as, as just sort of a, a witness of the horrible things that her grandfather is going through. Um, and she's also this guide for him, essentially. In her way, she she tries to help him overcome his dependence on, or at least she tries to have him acknowledge that her, his dependence on the Kronos is like a bad thing. And, and you see the grandfather and the granddaughter wrestle with that. So I, I think the I think the movie sort of handles its characters pretty well. Yeah, I find the whole Rob Perlman plot really funny and brings some nice levity to the whole situation. And I kind of like the buffoon American character and his obsession with like getting a nose job. Mm -hmm. That's such <laughs> and, a great detail. Yeah. And so I think. I also like the multilingual quality of the movie. You know, you've got Ron Perlman speaking in Spanish and like it's just it's just a great blend of uh, of of characters and language. And um, anyhow, that's that's a whole tangent. But I guess what I think are some strengths of the movie in its simplicity and ambiguity, others might find it sort of annoying that we don't have enough questions, which I think is totally fair. Or excuse me, we don't have enough answers to the questions that the movie raises. Well, I feel like I agree in that sense. I don't think it leaves me with a lot of unanswered questions personally as a viewer. I, I just think I I guess it's a tenuous balance that he walks a lot of times, as I said before, of like whimsy and horror. Um, and I think, you know, this is his first film. He's 28 years old. Um, he, he's feeling his way through it. And I think that's, that's clear in the sense that it is it's evident that it is a juvenile work for him. But I, it, you wouldn't be able to say that if you weren't such a strong director now and since. Um, so I don't think that detracts from the movie. I think it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, maybe I had over overestimated the my expectations for his first film. But I don't. Again, I don't think it's a bad film. I think it does really interesting things with horror um, when it does it, especially in ways that feel exclusively and. Uh, down to a T like, like some of his other work, as far as building like an elaborate set that for us frames the interiority of this Kronos device, which is just a small handheld device, but we see these giant, you know, intersecting wielding gears that are just this mechanical thing in the backdrop of which is this like organic, like sopping wet, gross, visceral, like insect. And like the, the fusion of like, you know, organisms and machinery and stuff, which he's really interested in in a lot of work. Uh, and Christine, to your credit, yeah, pointing out that it does feel like very fably. Again, like the more the more I think about this movie, the more I like it. But I think it's a movie I like thinking about more than I enjoyed watching it. But I'll have to go back and watch it again. What did we think about the body horror elements of it? Uh, so the close-ups of the device 
the uh, Jesus is holding it in his hand, and we really see how the mechanism works and and grips his hand. Like, what did we think about those those elements? So something I'm really interested in, which is says a lot about me, is I I love learning about the death and dying industry, and the scene of the funeral prep and um, you know sewing the the lips together and the the putty and coloring it was just so fascinating to me because I've read so much about all of this, um, and um, okay. I would love to read that day, whatever it is. Um, and uh, the whole like process and, and being a mortician. And so like that scene, I found incredibly interesting, uh, horrific, and also hilarious. Um, when Ron Perlman is like plugging his nose to make sure that he's really dead, but then like just wants to see him one last time, but he's like gone. He's just up and gone out of the casket uh, right before it's about to go into uh, cremation. I <laughs> really laughed about that. Yeah. So all of this after Jesus has, has died, so to speak, well, Ron Perlman kills him uh, kind of, but he's, you know, this eternal being because of this, this Kronos device and his utilization of it. Uh, and yeah, it's this hilarious little like slice of life cutaway that is just this, what's the word I'm looking for? Mortician, uh, just overseeing to the makeup of the body and being so invested in it and being so like artistic about it. And his comrade, like saying like, man, you're really, you're such a talent with this. It's too bad. He's going to be cremated. And then the guy's like, Oh, are you serious? I wouldn't have done all this. And it just looks so bad. It looks so bad. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm so glad, Sam and Dave, you brought up this scene because this is one of my favorite scenes. It, it like It's gross watching the mortician sew the lips and apply this putty while his friend is like, wow, Tito, this is looking great. And it's this nasty putty just slapped <laughs> on Jesus's forehead. The movie, yeah, it's gross. The scene is gross, but it's also so funny. And the guy who plays the mortician is absolutely a joy to watch as a performer and what I love about this scene is it's not only funny it's he's kind of like whistling doing a little dance while he's preparing the body or and then later you return to him and he's like about to cremate the body and he's just twirling his little cremation flame around (laughs) so precisely it's what I love about this scene is it's also just a little slice of life scene Uh, I think the movie does a wonderful job of introducing you to characters that don't really propel the plot forward in any like substantial way, but provides you a little slice of life of just 1993 Mexico City. The mortician, there's a wonderful scene where the grandmother is teaching tango or like uh, dance classes. uh, And you just get some wonderful characters in this dance class. There's a scene at the New Year's Eve uh, New Year's Eve party, and you just get little glimpses of just people in their world. And so I feel like the movie, it it sort of moves from like sort of these broad themes, broad strokes, sort of magical, sort of fable-like elements. All It moves from that all the way to just very specific slice of life moments about a very specific like city and like era. And um, I think... Honestly, I wish that more of those elements followed Del Toro through his 
movie career. Um, I feel like there, I feel like my relationship to his movies, I, some of them I absolutely love. And some of them I like, I'm like, what were you thinking? And I think he's falls into some traps too often of like wanting to sort of make the like sort of archetypal, like characters that are just going to like, bang you over the head with like theme capital T theme and I wish that like more playful moments like what you see throughout Kronos appear in other elements or other uh movies of his but anyhow I love that you guys brought up that mortician scene because it is so good (laughs) I agree and it does feel like probably his most lived in movie which is it's really interesting because the movie opens, uh, I think, right around Christmas, uh, maybe a little after Christmas, because there's the New Year's Eve party after several days have passed. Uh, but you, it's great. There are these little shots of uh, streets of Mexico City, sort of in like Christmas hangover mode. There's paper strewn off across the streets. There's uh, Christmas drapes just hanging sadly off of uh, streetcars and wires and things like that. And so... Uh, and then you're introduced to uh, Jesus Greece and his shop and everything like that. Um, and so it feels like, yeah, very, there there I am again, time and place. I feel like that's been my thing recently, just movies that drop you right into a specific time and place. Um, and, and one part of the setting that I appreciated uh, was, I think New Year's is like a great time to set a movie about time and de-aging and immortality. Mm-hmm. As you, you know, sort of think about going into the new year, uh, his wife says like, oh, this dress didn't fit, you know, fit me last year. How fat, you know, how much can I change in one year? So I think that there's some, he's also playing with some fun kind of thematic, tying thematic elements into the setting. Um, I think he does that well in a lot of movies. And this one was a, a good example of that. Um, and I think Christine, as you were talking, one thing I thought of was when we see the Americans, it's kind of like these cold, literally sterile settings, especially with Dieter. Uh, but with these sort of more slice of life moments, it's people dancing, it's mortuaries, it's parties, it's all these lived in kind of, um, locals, you know, Mexico city sort of living their lives when this Americans coming in and this cold, as I mentioned, sterile facility, cause he's sick and dying. Ron Perlman has to wear a mask. So I didn't right. even quite think guess that. Movies, the little bags on his feet. Yeah. And, and a really effective, uh, set of Dieter de la Guardia's like, yeah, sterile rooms that he, he exists in, I guess, protect himself from, everything that could potentially age him and destroy his body, but the hanging archangels. So as De La Guardia has been trying to track down Kronos, he's been trying to find all of these wooden angel statues that he thinks the Kronos device is inside. So presumably as he collects them, he hangs them from the ceiling when he realizes that they don't have the device inside. But but visually, it really is creepy in his room. We see a bunch of hanging wooden angels with plastic bags over them. Uh, and it creates a great set piece. And yeah, I think you've got a great point there, Connor, this very sterile, uh, sterile environment where these the yeah the family exists and well also some interesting symbolism too in terms of him being a, a you know a, a, an american howard hughes-esque businessman who wants this very sterile environment to the point that he'll hang his own organs and jars but also is seeking to collect these religious figures that have all this 
localized iconography and meaning, but it's just collecting them and putting them in bags when it's not what he sought out. Oh, yeah, just hoarding it and, yeah. Without meaning, yeah. Or with ulterior motive, yeah. And I love that Ron Perlman's character's name is Angel or Angel. Like, he's, like, literally, like, the angel of death doing Dieter de la Guardia's bidding. <laughs> Basically, his, like, his, like, secretary, his hitman, his, I don't know, uh, antiques appraiser. Pearl, Ron Perlman is like the catch-all <laughs> nephew. <laughs> Poor guy. And then you feel kind of as, oh, sorry for him because he's overworked. But um, And then he dances when Dieter is seemingly killed. He's literally dancing. Yeah, so he's good. very... Yeah, so uh, Ron Perlman's character is rejoicing that his uncle is finally killed. Um, and then and then we see uh, Jesus, who smash ultimately smashes the Kronos. He recognizes that it, that it's done. It's basically destroyed his life and his relationships to the people around him, to his wife, uh, to his granddaughter. Um, and his granddaughter actually goes to the LaGuardia uh, factory, uh, De La Guardia factory, uh, as Jesus returns to essentially kill the uncle, or at least, yeah, beat him up. But she takes him back to their home, and the final scene is of Jesus lying in his bed uh, as his wife sits by his bedside and uh, mourning his passing. I guess again, what do we think about the ending? What a what how, what, what a way to end a movie. <laughs> the scene of this kind of like climactic fight on top of the building and it sort of ends, you know, it's like Ron Perlman has this like curtain rod that he's like trying to hit. And I really liked how Jesus' solution was, well, I'm immortal. Let me just jump off the building and you know, get him that way. Like, I thought that was like a pretty clever, like use of his power. Yeah. I mean, he throws, yeah, he throws Ron Perlman with like off the top of the building along with himself and they both go down and they, I, I guess they, I guess Jesus dies. He's dead. Right. I never really. Well, he's like, he's injured. Totally it seems as though they're processed. Both, yeah. It seems as though they're both dead, which is when Aurora comes the last time with the Cronus device to revive Jesus. But then what, after him. that, do we think he, in the shot where he's in the bed and his wife is is and his granddaughter with him, is he is he gone for good? Well, at one point they kind of allude to the fact that if the Kronos device, if you're using it and it's destroyed, then you will be destroyed as well, or at least not immortal anymore, while he's like a reanimated body. So it's like he, he's going to rot away. He's going to eventually succumb to the inevitability of mortality after a story hinged upon immortality, which is, I don't know, a nice, a nice button. Yeah. So pretty much, I mean, yeah, the, the movie ends with him pretty much a goner uh, with his nasty skin. That's supposed to be immortal skin, but it looks like he's made of marble, like squishy marble. It's nasty. But yeah, I guess the ending is pretty ambiguous as well, not providing too many too many answers. But that's, I mean, that's Kronos. That's 
Guillermo's first movie, he'll go on to, uh, yeah, as we mentioned, do some classics like Pan's Labyrinth. He, I mean, he ultimately won Academy Award for uh, uh, Shape of Water. And it is interesting, Dave, you bring up, like, you couldn't help but think of another movie while watching this movie. I, there's been obviously controversy about Del Toro, ex- like, drawing s- plot points from other stories and oh, things like right? that. Well, there was that whole Shape of Water drama, right? I don't know if there was, there was merit to that. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess people was... were pissy too about Pacific Rim and Evangelion a little bit and everything. Oh, yeah. So I guess I would argue that when you deal with, I, I, like his stories aren't, the plots I would say are not completely original because he loves to draw on uh sort of, yeah, as we've said, sort of mythic stories. And fables, um, yeah, yeah. Right. But but yeah, I, I, I'll have to check out Hellraiser because uh, I, I just brief look up and the guy with pins in his face looks pretty intense. But um, Jesus wept. <laughs> Wait for that line, man. It's great. I love that movie. Um, well, yeah. Any last thoughts about Kronos? I'm glad I was able to bring it to the table. Um, sorry it was not everyone's cup of tea, but yeah. We can't win them all. Christine, this is how I felt after Practical Magic. And I was like, son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> but, you know, movies like this about immortality, I'm just like, who wants this? Being alive forever? This forever? Are you kidding? I could not imagine anything worse. So, well, But that's why the Dieter plot is so interesting because he does want that. And the guy inflicted with it actually doesn't in the end. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Yeah, Jesus stumbles upon this device. It He accidentally gets pricked with it. And then that sets in motion his dependency on it. Uh, and yeah, he's like, and he recognizes how it's destroyed his life. While Dieter de la Guardia is this just like nasty, nasty guy. Who bashing everybody with canes. Organs in jars. Yeah, and just bat, right, bashes. Yeah. Uh, Sam, Ron Perlman even brings up your point. Why would he, he just eats and sleeps why, why, or like, you know, shits and sleeps. Why would he want to, yeah, yeah, this isn't shits. Why would he want that forever? So he brings up your point. Yeah. I, one part that I appreciated, and this is just, I don't quite know where this note belongs, but lots of gear imagery similar to Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, Mm -hmm. another movie that features heavy use of, you know, golden gears and all that. So I just thought that was like, maybe a coincidence i don't i'm not familiar with that part of the hellboy mythos um but i was like oh there's a little bit of hellboy 2 in here um which i thought was was cool yeah i would say again that i i didn't disenjoy the movie um i i feel a little more strongly about his other work but uh for for a launch pad for a, a young director and making making it the most uh then expensive movie in the history of Mex- mexican cinema it's uh, it's quite a feat, and it was obviously well received, and in provided him the platform to do his other work. So, um, if you're a fan, I'd say check it out. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend this movie. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think if you watch it. Send us an email. Uh, write us a letter. Send it, Carrier Pigeon. Maybe we'll get it. Or or check out our socials. We are on Instagram at Butter With That. We are on Twitter with Butter With That One, right? 
you can send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. And so, yeah, drop us a line. Tell us what's up and let me know if you've seen Kronos or tell us, you know, what other Guillermo del Toro movies that you love or hate. Like Crimson Peak. I was so excited about that fucking movie and it was not good. Scary Anyhow. stories to tell in the dark. It's garbage. Oh, see, he has a bunch of misfires. And I guess part I'm so protective over Kronos because I feel like I want him to like, like return back to some of the elements of that story. Anyhow, uh, it's been real, folks. Great combo. And uh, have a great rest of uh, October and spooky season. So uh, have a good whatever. And we will catch you next week for our new theme that we're so excited to announce. All right, everyone. Take care. And we will catch you later. Bye. 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 Bye.